Listener Production. Hi, this is Charles Fairley. Welcome back to Unsung Business Heroes, where we talk to small business about big ideas. Today we're going to hear from Warwick Anderson from Intertrade Insurance Services, who's been working for 28 years in that business, and he's got some real gems to share with us, like the fact that people need to know, like and trust you before they'll do business with you. Simple, but makes sense. But Warwick's got a really interesting story as well. He imported Nintendo toys back in the early days before they got into electronics. And he learnt from a lot of his mistakes, almost going bankrupt. So here's Warwick Anderson. I was born in 1947 and I grew up in uh, Concord West initially. We then moved to Petersham because mum and dad decided they wanted to change. And they were a bit ahead of their time. They, uh, they set up a, um, a health food shop Wow. Which was, why, you know, it was probably one of the first or second in, in, uh, in Sydney at the time. But this was going back to before television, just before TV came in. Mm-hmm. I spent, uh, after school, we spent most of our time building billy carts and cubby houses and, um, and, and having fun outdoors. And um, it was uh, 1960 when I uh, went to high school and my mum and dad persevered. They sent me to Sydney Grammar School. It was good, very good. And from there I went on to the University of New South Wales because yep. everybody expected to go to, to, uh, to university. Sure. I wasn't quite sure what I, what I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. After a couple of years at uni, the first year full-time, I decided to give it away and I joined a company called T.C. Denton, Thomas C. Denton & Company, mm-hmm. who were chemical and raw material importers. Things changed in the company. Lots of people, uh, the family sort of all arrived on the scene to stake their claim. And I decided that uh, I'd probably gone as far with Denton's as I was going to go. Right. So together with another colleague that I'd been doing some business with, we formed another company and we got involved in sort of importing some of the chemicals that I'd been used to. Right. But I'd also been involved with Tom in sort of trying to expand his company's um, activities and products. And um, at that time we, uh, we got into, we were introduced to electronic calculators. Ah, okay. At this particular stage, and I'm talking about 1967 now, 67 going on to 68, where I did all of my calculations on a slide rule. <laughs> we, uh, we communicated with the rest of the world by telex machines, mm. and liquid crystals were just coming into their own. With the chemicals that we imported, we bought a lot of it from Japan through what we call Japanese trading companies. So they would represent the manufacturers here and introduce the manufacturers' products to various companies that they thought were were good over here in Australia. So they introduced us to um, electronic calculators. Right. And at that stage, they were all up around about the dollars $120 per calculator. Mm. And okay. um, Expensive. They're all LED displays. So Hewlett-Packard, Casio, those sort of things? Not at that stage. This was called Teal. Tokyo Electronic Application Laboratories. It later went on to become involved in um, in the retailers or in the supermarket areas. They were they got involved in setting up the um, um, the machines that you you would go through to um, to to purchase your stuff and go on. Okay. Yeah. But so they introduced us to calculators, and we were selling calculators into this for the first time. Prior to that, you'd buy office machines from somebody like Penfolds or. Off an office machine dealer. Yeah. And um, 
So we decided we'd sell it to the retail stores. Our first major coup was selling to farmers. Oh. So we sold calculators into the stationary departments of farmers. When you say farmers, it's not farmers on agriculture? It's no, not farmers. No, no, the retail stores farmers who were Australia-wide. They later got bought out by Grace Brothers and then became finally, as today, Myers. But we were selling to John Bones in South Australia, John Martins in WA, all sorts of retailers. We even sold to Jerry Harvey when he was Norman Ross Discounts. Right. So that goes back a long, long way. Yeah. Having been successfully uh, able to sell these calculators to the stationery departments, the Japanese then introduced me to another company which had playing cards and roulette wheels and dice games, things that could also be sold to the stationery departments. Hmm. And that company was called Nintendo. Really? So to get the Australian agency for Nintendo, we bought $30,000 worth, which in 1967, 68 was a lot of money. Mm. And it involved the, um, the, the card games and the stationary items, but they were only just getting into toys at that stage. So they had radio control cars. They had these funny little, um, uh, uh, what do you call them, like laser toys that you'd have a target and you'd fire a gun or a rifle at this target and right. if it hit the target, the target would make a noise or, or, or light up. Sure, sure. So that was interesting. So we sold a lot of the um, stationary items, but found it a bit difficult to compete on the toys because we were up against the, the likes of Mattel and Toll Toys and yep. some bigger um, operators who spent an absolute arm and a leg sure. on advertising and marketing. Yep. And uh, it was all done on TV and it was all in relation to a, a movie. It might be Thomas the Tank Engine or... Yeah, uh, or licensing. You know, yep. Barbie, and, Barbie and a mate Ken or whatever, or a Disney movie. Massive budgets. Yep. Yeah, sure, yeah. sure. The Japanese also introduced us to these little fold-up polypropylene two-man dinghies. You could <laughs> right. fold them up and put them into a suitcase. Okay. And uh, together with another friend of mine who was in direct mail marketing... We put ads in the modern, uh, modern boating, the NRMA Open Road, uh, and a few other areas, a few other magazines. They were originally offered it to us and they were going to cost over $100 each. But when the Japanese said, look, you can have 2,000 of these things and you're going to they're only going to cost you $10 US each, we thought, if we can't sell a couple of thousand dollars of these, I'll be very surprised. Mm. So we, we said, yes, give us 2,000 of them. And I remember I was sitting in my little office at that stage with John, my partner, uh, above a retail shop on Pacific Highway at Crow's Nest. And one afternoon this fellow came up the stairs in his blue singlet and shorts and he said, I got your boats out the front. Boys, where do you want them? And I said, what? And I looked out the window and there was a full container of these things and he double parked on the Pacific Highway at Crow's Nest. We had to ring around, find places where we could, huh. friends and, and people in the area that have garages or wherever we could wow. stack these things. So that was a lot of fun. <laughs> the boats, we sold about 500 of them. So we still had 1,500 of those. Hmm. We had all these toys. And in the meantime, our main product that we made money out of, the calculators, had started to come down in price. It only took a couple of years and mm. instead of paying $120 for a calculator, there were more and more on the market and before you know it, uh, within two years, they were selling for about $10 each. Yeah, that's cheap. And we would have to carry stock of two or three months worth for the various retailers who would simply say, I'm sorry, we're overstocked, we can't take them. So before we knew it, we, we, were, we were getting into a little bit of financial difficulty. So we decided to um, liquidate the company, sell off as whatever we had at whatever price we could get for it, 
and then we made an arrangement to, to pay off our debt over the next couple of years between us, which we did. To make some money, a friend of mine said to me, who had already sold me some life insurance, why don't you come and start and have a look at the life insurance industry and sell life insurance? Wow, what year was that? That was in 1972. Okay. So I thought, well, you know, I've got nothing else going for me at the moment, so why not give it a go? Just a chance meeting. So I did. So my idea was to to get into life insurance, make some money, pay off my debts, and then get back into importing. Right. But within a couple of years, having paid off our debts, I suddenly realised that, well, this is not a bad way to make a living, actually. Sure. I don't have to carry stock. I don't have to worry about trends. I don't have to worry about changes in the uh, currency situation. Everyone needs insurance. I don't need to spend a lot of money advertising. Mm -hmm. Everybody needs it, no matter who I go to. And so I thought, well, why not persevere with this? So I did. Okay. And but so, by this stage, that's when I got into the uh, into the management side of things, and I joined a company called Security Life out at Burwood, and they later became Lumley Life, and they had a uh, an interest in general insurance as well. So that's when I started learning a bit about general insurance, mm-hmm. um, and before long, we had other companies coming in from America and the, and England with new sorts of products, new products like term life insurance, non-cancellable income protection. Superannuation, portable superannuation. Now, hadn't been heard of at that stage. Right. So a lot of things were changing in the industry. Yes. So I, I said goodbye to a, a standard um, uh, decent salary. I said goodbye to a home, uh, subsidised home loan. I said goodbye to commission on my, uh, uh, overriding commission on my agent side. And I said goodbye to a company car. I went home to my wife and told her what I was going to do, that I was going back out. My first son was only six months old. I said, I'm going back out into the field to uh, exist on commission only. She said, are you sure you know what you're doing? I said, it's going to be tough for a while, but in the long run, this is going to be the best thing that we've ever done. We would have learned a lot about yourself in those days, I'm sure. I did, yeah. And I got myself all comfy in a nice little $500 Austin 1800, yeah. refinanced the house and started again from the, uh, from the third bedroom of home. So your son works with you, Warwick, and how long has that been going on and what do you hope for him, for his future in this business? Well, I've had three boys. The, the older two worked for me at various stages but have gone on to do other things. Yeah. Jeremy came and did some work experience for me when he was still at school and um, he enjoyed what he did and so he came straight from school and he's been with me ever since. It's a great feeling to be able to work and be involved with your son, to mentor him and I've got a couple of other young guys that have been with me, you know, 15 plus years. Really? Wow. And for me, they are going to be the succession plan for this business. Right. So, I mean, I could sit back and sell it for, for a nice tidy sum sure. and so on. But my idea these days is to work on the business, to develop it, to help them, to make to, to pass on my knowledge, what I've learned to them, yeah. um, and see them grow into the business, into a situation. When I left the Lane Cove chapter of B&I and moved into the city where I am now, I got Jeremy to take over my position. He was only about 24 at the time. Right. And um, I think that has really helped him develop as a person, so he was able, it taught him how to stand up, to deliver a, uh, a, a, a small presentation each week mm-hmm. on our business 
and the sort of business that we were looking for, to be able to liaise with people of all ages. It's given him the confidence and the knowledge that he's now got and in a position to to go on and uh, and pass that on to other people that we're now employing as well. And he's got you as a great role model as well, of course. I try to be. So how long has he been working with you now? Since he left school, that's nine years. And one day he'll be running the business, eh? He will be. He's, he's now a director, and young Michael has been with me for 16 years. He's now a director of the company. Okay. So, you know, I'm giving them a situation where they've got a legacy to, to continue on for me. Yeah. And um, I have no intention of retiring, uh, but I see my role for the next 10 years as perhaps uh, working on the business, developing it, helping them to grow, passing on knowledge and getting a kick out of seeing them continue on something that I started off. Yeah, and I'm sure you'd be very proud of what they achieve too. So work through all your upbringing, your childhood and seeing your mum and dad working and changing roles to the health food shop and so forth, what did you learn from that experience that, that you think you took into your business? I learned that uh, they were both hard-working people. They were entrepreneurial. My mum would make, uh, you know, she would go out and people would come and ask her to make dresses specifically for her. Hmm. So she had a, she had a, um, a school that she used to her best advantage. And my dad, um, he, he, you know, he was consistent in everything he did. He, he would go off to work. He'd come home at the same time. He was hardworking. I think he, uh, he got to the stage where he thought, well, I can make more money uh, in my own business. So that's when he and mum got together and decided to, um, to set up the hill food shop. So um, from a very early age, I saw my parents start a business and run it. And, um, you know, I think that some of that has actually obviously rubbed off on me during the, during the years. It was all about relationships, of course, and that's part, it was of, indeed, exactly. part of what you do for your career too, isn't it, talking that's to correct. people? That's correct. Yeah. And what about with um, insurance now compared to the importing business that you moved out of to go into insurance? What's well, the difference with importing, you? you're really dealing with either big corporations that you're, um, you're dealing with and you might only have three, four or five major clients that, right. that you, you sell to. Yeah. Whereas with the uh, insurance industry, I could pick and choose who I wanted to talk to. Sure. And I met so many fantastic people. And I loved meeting people, different people, and I got a great deal of pleasure from helping them. Yeah. From being able to assist them, to uh, understand what their needs in life were in terms of their insurance covers. Yeah. And putting it in place and looking after them and changing it, changing their covers as they, as they progress through life, as they got married, as they got children, as they started businesses. Yeah. So things were changing all the time. And I, uh, to this day, uh, that's one thing that really stirs me up or spurns me on sure. is to make meeting new people and being able to help them in their everyday life. Well, you're a trusted advisor, aren't you? So it's that developing that trust with, between you, you and your clients and your, and your staff, of that's course. Right. Yeah. That's very important, isn't it? It is indeed. Yeah, yeah. But what do you do today for creativity and fun? Right? Well, uh, some of my clients that I met... Um, were involved with uh, different schools and they were involved in these uh, mime reviews. So one of the things I did over a period of about 10 years was get involved with about another oh, 10 or 15 guys and about 20 girls and we would um, work for about six months practising um, and performing these reviews which were all mimed. Mm-hmm. So it was music and comedy and um, they were for different causes. The first one we did was I think for Loretta Normanhurst and we helped them raise money uh, to buy the school bus 
From then on, we did one for Riverview College and then we did about three or four to raise money for Care Cancer. Yep. We used to run the Care Cancer ones we did at um, North Sydney League Club. Yep. And we'd, you know, we'd practice and get this, get it all ironed out and ready to perform and we'd do it over three nights. It would be a Friday night, a Saturday night and then a Sunday afternoon matinee. Fantastic. So we had a lot of fun doing that, working yeah. together, met some more great people and um, had a lot of fun. You know. Again, comes back to that relationship, I'm sure. It does indeed. So you obviously enjoy giving back to the community oh, and exactly. to charities and things. Every year for the last four years, or is it five, four or five, is um, I get involved in a car rally in the old bash cars. A lot of the, the guys that we go away with have been involved in the Royal Flying Doctor bash. When I moved here to this office five years ago, I met uh, John Afford, who's got a bash car. And for the last five years, we've been away at different functions with about, I think the first we only had about 20 cars. Last year, we had about pretty close to 100. Wow. And we spend four days, we do around about 1,500, we do about 500 kilometres a day. And um, we've been raising money for Beyond Blue. Right. So last year, the group, the 100 cars and everybody involved, I think we raised just over 400,000. Wow. In four days, five, four or five days for Beyond Blue. Um, to the point we are now, Beyond Blue's um, biggest fundraiser. Yeah, where do you think that comes from, Warwick, that your desire to give things back and help people? And We're in an industry to advise people to um, set up covers so that if things go wrong, their business will continue. But why you and why not someone else? For me personally, well, there's probably, there's probably a lot of, quite a lot of other people that get involved in doing this sort of thing. I get a lot out of it. Um, yeah. We actually are now part of a, uh, a dealer group which is called Community Broker Network. So mm -hmm. the Community Broker Network's basic aim is to, is to grow, to sustain and to assist the community. So we do things for the community. It's a great thing to be able to do it, as you say. Correct. You must feel very proud of helping people in that way. Look, we're doing claims every day. It's amazing the number of claims that do come through. I've seen them grow. We've now got our own full-time claims manager here mm -hmm. and she does a great job. You know, one of the things we don't have to worry, our clients don't need to worry about filling out forms. They just give us a call, tell, them, tell us what's happened and we get on and get it all sorted out for them and they can get on with what they do best in their own business. If you had one opportunity to give one message about everything you've learned in one sentence, what would that message be to that person? I'd say dare to dream. Mm -hmm. You okay. can dream, you, nothing in life is impossible. You can do anything. Whatever you want to achieve, it's possible to achieve. Yep. The only thing limiting you is the, um, is the power of thought and power of setting a goal. Right. There's a lot of people out there doing some fantastic things in the world, but that's what I would learn. You know, I've, 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 I've since opened a business in Melbourne. We've expanded down there. We've got an office down in Melbourne now. We've got two more staff down there. People said, why on earth would you want to move down to Melbourne? I said, well, I met two people who were, had been involved in this industry for some time. They weren't happy where they were. I thought they would um, enjoy the culture that we have in this office. Um, so I opened an office in Melbourne and put them on. So, you know, I, people said, oh, are you sure you can do that? And I said, of course you can. You can do it's anything. It's all in your mind. Whatever you want to do, you can do. Yep. So that's, if I, had, if I was going tomorrow, I'd say to people, don't be afraid to dream. Right. And make your dream come true. That's because it. it is possible. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned the culture of the, the, the business. What, what's different about the culture here? The culture with our business, we probably spend more time in the office together 
than we do at home at night with our, our, our sure. respective partners sure. or on the, on the weekend. So people have got to enjoy coming to work. We have, a, we have fun. We, we have a beautiful, uh, when we set this office up, we chose it specifically because we've got a lovely courtyard out the back. Mm-hmm. We've got a big table, we've got a barbecue. Regularly, we try once a week to have a, uh, a sit-down meal together. We invite insurers along, we invite clients along, and we, uh, we have a lot of time where we can actually relate to each other, like one big happy family. So it's not actually a job or work, it's fun for you. Exactly, if you don't like, if you, if you don't enjoy coming to work, I don't think you work too well. But if people enjoy coming to work, they work better. They want to work better. They want to, we want to help each other. And we do help each other. We have one big open plan office up the other end there. When people are having problems or they, if, you can, can, if you think that someone needs a bit of help with a particular situation that they might be trying to ensure, we all get on the wagon and we help each other. We talk to each other. We have fun together. And we celebrate our wins together. I hope you enjoyed our chat and got some really great tips, both for business and for life. Don't forget to have a look at unsungbusinessheroes.com.au and check out all our videos on YouTube. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. All these stories are available in our second book, Unsung Business Heroes, which is available right now. And if you'd like to get a free notification every time there's a new Unsung Business Heroes episode, just hit the subscribe button. Unsung Business Heroes was presented by me, Charles Fairley. The executive producer was Jenny Goggin. Listener.